Welcome to the Ignite Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets to ignite the growth of your agency. They potentially can spend more time with their customers and less time doing all the stuff that they're really rubbish at. I remember when Rightmove became a thing. Purple Bricks came off the back of that mindset, that thinking. It challenges the status quo. We challenge the status quo here in the Lake District. If you are feeling frustrated, the lack of growth in your agency, and you're impatient to reach those ever-moving goalposts, then here's your invitation to find out more about if and how we can help you scale and build the agency of your dreams. All we want you to do is go to fire-wave.co.uk forward slash AJMM, and that'll be in the show notes as well. Here are your hosts, Sam and Phil. Today's episode of the Ignite podcast is a special one. We're going to be doing a pick and mix. And we're going to be doing this several times a year where we pick all the best bits from the previous few podcasts, mash them all together and spit them out into something that is actually quite special. So enjoy. Hello, Michael Bruce, and welcome to the Ignite podcast. We're delighted that you've joined us today. I'm sure that you need no introduction, but we are going to let you introduce yourself. So please just tell us a little bit about you, um, what you're doing now, and also where you're dialing in from today. Good afternoon. So yes, I am Michael Bruce. Someone has to be that, and that's me. So yes, I'm the group CEO of a very new property portal called Boomin. I was previously the group CEO of a business called Purple Bricks. And prior to that, I was CEO of a traditional high street estate agency business. So I've been through all different aspects of the whole world of estate agency. And now we've gone from estate agency to actually working with estate agency in a property pool. And one of the things that I was really clear about back then is if I wanted to be successful, I'd have to learn one to be able to have the confidence to be able to learn the art of communication. So how does your brother fit into the picture then? My brother was the estate agent in the camp in many ways. So believe it or not, both of us have run an applicant box. So, you know, I've sat at the front of an office of Countrywide with an applicant box during my university days, ringing through it, being an estate agent to a degree. So that was quite interesting. But he's the thoroughbred in terms of estate agency. So we've both done it to a, to a degree. Mine much less, his much more. And he started at 17 in the world of estate agency and pretty much all of his life has been around that. So you knew you were good at something in business and Kenny was in a estate agency and it just made sense or was it a target of yours to get into that sort of industry? Well, it was slightly different to that to some degree because firstly, like I said, when I was at university, Countrywide gave me a legal job to do and during that time I became fully acquainted with the world of estate agency with how they operate, how they work. And genuinely, I and to this day, remain very fascinated by that world because the world is full of people who are like me, like Kenny, who there's a lot of people in it that just go, fall there at school. They fall into the world of estate agency and they go and have aspirations to be successful, whether that is successful as a branch manager or successful in some way as their own entrepreneur. 
And being me, being me, thought I then, having spent some time at Countrywide, thought I was uh, the most knowledgeable man about state agency in the world, which was clearly not true. And to be honest, what happened, I was second year of university. And having done that, my first daughter was conceived, second year of university. Oh, my goodness. How old were you then? Uh, how old was it then? About 20, 21, something like that. Was that in the plan? No, no, it wasn't planned. And therefore, to your answer to your question, you then have to start to think about how the hell am I going to pay for this uh, upbringing of this beautiful little girl? And genuinely what happened was I got out the yellow pages and I started ringing through all of the uh, firstly estate agents. And I rang through and got to B was Birchall Edwards. Birchall Edwards was bought out of Cornerstone. Tim Birchall had just bought it out of Cornerstone. He'd spend a fortune on lawyers, hated the whole idea of ever spending another penny with lawyers, saw me as a cheap, skate, young, up-and-coming lawyer and said, yeah, you come and work with me. And I went and worked with him. And then I also then went through all the lawyers in the Yellow Pages, got to be, and again, uh, got a law firm that I called and they gave me a chance. So I went along there and the guy who interviewed me, Steve Parker, he was the partner in the law firm. And we went on to take our own law firms together and we've worked together ever since and he works in Booming. So I fell into the world of estate agency to a degree like most people do. So whose idea was Purple Bricks then? And then how did it come about as well? Was there a certain pain point you noticed or a gap in the market? Were you in a bar? Were you having a KFC? Sam still claims that she had the idea just before you brought it out. In fairness, everybody had the idea. You know, reality is none of us are walking around in white coats. So in essence, everything that we create as entrepreneurs are really taking something that exists in the world already and trying to do something differently or better with it. So in reality, what happened with Purple Bricks is again, back to the point I just made about not having really been an estate agent. And you look at it in a very different way. And I could never understand why I worked with great people, some of them not the most highly educated, but they were great at what they did. And I could never understand why, having worked with them, most people actually found estate agents in a fairly negative way. And to some extent, everything I've done since has been around how do we equip those people to deliver a better outcome so that we give people a better perception. Uh, And to some extent, (laughs) whether it's worked or not worked, Purple Bricks came off the back of, okay, we've got great people, some of which have got real ambitions to run their own business. Circumstance often prevents people doing that. To my point earlier about second year of university, you know, mortgages, families, kids, whatever the case may be. So it was How do we give these people the opportunity to run their own business? And also, how do we make them more productive so that they potentially can spend more time with their customers and less time doing all the stuff that they're really rubbish at? So Purple Bricks came off the back of that mindset, that thinking. Do you remember where you were, Michael, when you actually had the idea? The idea itself or, you know, the name or what? Probably the idea. I mean, was it just a gradual realisation? The commitment, the commitment to, yeah. to say, right, I'm going to do this. Yeah. It came about a few months before we sold the 
high street estate agency business entirely to do the purple bricks proposition. So uh, to your point, our, our whole mindset was totally on that. So you had the exit plan, you had the, this is what we're going to do afterwards. And so where did the name come from then? And the name came, I mean, I have this philosophy in life, no one gives a kipper anymore about your product or service. They just care about how they feel when they engage with it. Feelings are the exact same when it comes to anything, brands, colours, sounds, anything at all, that they provoke a sense of feeling in someone. So with Purple Bricks, it was, tell us a little bit about, go and find me a colour that best depicts a sense of positivity in the mind of someone when they hear it. To some extent, regalness, to some extent, uh, positivity, to some extent, credibility. Chocolate. Purple was at the top of the list. I, I always associate with chocolate, so that's a very positive it's connotation. It's um, quality street. It's not quality street. Mm. It's definitely Cadbury's. Yeah, yeah. Cadbury's purple bar, same colour. Oh. oh, I see. So that's where it came from. It's, it's a really strong name. It's a great name. Ask, did you at any point before launching Purple Bricks understand or foresee the disruption and push controversy, controversy you the industry was gonna was gonna give you and, and to some extent still just today? I didn't really think about in that way. I think ultimately it was about estate agents, it was about technology, it was about consumers, it was about bringing them together and seeing what happened. I mean, the reality of the situation is, you know, lots of people had tried elements of it before and it, to some extent, didn't work out very well. So we didn't go into it with anything other than agent and consumer in mind. Yeah, and it has been immensely popular and, and successful. And influential. It, looking back over the seven years now, what's your overriding feeling about the company? Did it go to plan? Any regrets on, on how it went? At the end of the day, I, everything I do, I try not to look back. If I do look back, I look back to try and learn about how it can help me influence going forward. There were definitely things that we didn't do very well. There were definitely things that we did well. There were definitely things we'd do differently. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, sometimes it's very easy to criticise but the reality is that we were learning as much as anyone else. So we were going 120 miles an hour. We were making decisions, going into new territory. Kenny and I hadn't built an element of technology before we started the whole idea of Purple Bricks. We didn't even know how you did it. We hadn't really built a brand before that because we bought a brand that was in existence. We hadn't advertised on TV. We hadn't done any of these things. And therefore, it was ultimately always going to be the case that we would do some stuff wrong or not very well. If you're going to learn and grow, I don't think you can not do it wrong. We made some disastrous decisions at first. Actually, well, there could have been disastrous. Luckily, we managed to mitigate them. We decided to hire a business development manager when we'd been open about three minutes. I don't know what we were thinking there. And that didn't go to plan, funnily enough. But you are a product. It's a bit like you were saying before about you, you know, you two and a half miles to school. Is that what you said? Two yeah. and a half miles at five years old. Yeah. It's the same thing, isn't it? We're a product of all those things, product of, of every <laughs> scrape and lost money and compliment and insult and, and all the rest of it. That's why we're here today. And Phil and I have had to develop some very thick skins and I'm sure you have that too as well it's just the way it goes isn't it I have a whole cupboard of hard hats that, that 
So it was a. It's, you know, people will always have a view and opinion. I think it's fair that they express their view and opinion. All I've ever tried to do is say, don't form that view or of opinion based on some of the stuff you read. Because if you do, then ultimately, you know, Kenny and I are, are nutcases and that you ought not to engage with us at all. You know, come and talk to us, come and engage with us and make a decision off that. And if you think we're, you know, not very nice people or not very, we don't have integrity or we don't care about the industry, that's fine. At least you've engaged with us, you've made a decision and cracked on. But you know, I wouldn't make it based on what you read. Well, it's all about <laughs> making omelets and cracking eggs, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? So you had a great run at the Purple Bricks. I'm sure that you enjoyed most of it. It was a, it was a ride, wasn't it? And you came out the other end. And then how did booming come about then? When I left Purple Bricks, I sort of said I wasn't going to do another startup again. <laughs> uh, How's that going I, for you? <laughs> it, the wheel fell off that idea fairly, 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 fairly. <laughs> It's because uh, you don't play golf, you see. You didn't have anything else to turn to, did you? It was like that old jigsaws. <laughs> what I was going to do was going to go out and help other people fulfil their dreams, maybe help them, maybe invest in it, do that. But very quickly I came to the conclusion I'd be rubbish at it because, you know, I'd be working harder than them. I'd be pushing faster than them. I'd be trying to get to places the entrepreneur just doesn't want to go. And I'd just become a nuisance. So I thought, well, <laughs> no good doing that. So, you know, the way in which we think about businesses, I like wine windows. And wine windows are effectively that window whenever a bottle of wine tastes the absolute optimum. And so ultimately, Purple Bricks was front and center of the wine window. If we'd have tried it a few years earlier, it wouldn't have tasted quite so well. If we'd have tried it a few years later, it wouldn't have tasted quite as good. So where was the wine window in the industry? And I genuinely believe that the biggest problem facing the future of our industry is around right move and things like that. I'm not over-dramatizing it, genuinely not. I'm just saying that, you know, is impacting how big the market is, it's impacting people's engagement with agents, and it's impacting the future of a state agency for me, because I think if you're paying two or three thousand pounds a month today, and their strategy will always be 10 or 15 percent more every year. In three years' time, there'll be people paying 60,000, a year for one branch to the likes of Rightmove, for example. And that will have a major impact on people coming into the industry, the ability for people to be able to fulfill their dreams, open their branch, do what they're doing. And I think also agents deserve more, better technology, better innovation, more thought process, not just pay me more money and advertise my properties, but actually, how can we help you deliver a better experience for your customers? How can we help you get your brand front and center with your customers, not just during a transaction, but for a lifetime? How can we bring people into the market that are sat on the fence? There's a massive market of people that would say, oh, I'd move if I could find the house I could move to. But there is, those people are not engaging with agents anymore. In the past, they were engaging with them. The agent was doing things to entice them into the market. They were actively trying to create a market. But today, they sit on portals and wait for an alert to come to a property that's come to the market. And they think that's the market. And there isn't the market. There are tens of thousands of agents out there who will help deliver and grow the market 
if we had the opportunity. I think just slapping a property on a portal and paying every month and paying more every year, I personally think those days have to come to an end Mm. and we have to innovate and we have to get agents to get back some of their control. I mean, they're not the ones in control, I'm afraid. So you mentioned in three years' time, right, move costs could be 50, 60, 70,000 pounds per branch. Where do you see booming fitting in there? Is your plan to be competing with right move in terms of the amount of properties on the market? Or is your plan also to compete on price? So in three years' time, what would you expect a single branch to be paying for booming for a year? The thing about booming is, one is that, again, back to the point I made earlier, all we think about are agents, people who visit the site and the experience they get, and that's it. We don't think about competitors. We don't think about any of that. We just think about those things in a very sort of single-minded way. And the whole booming model is built around saying to agents, instead of the portal monetizing materially from your property stock and stuff like that. Actually, what we're going to do is create an environment which means that firstly, we'll give people a much different experience. So booming, you know, you hear people talk a lot about, oh, here, 4.5 million a day go to right move, but there's only 10,000 transactions a day in the UK, sales and lettings. So whilst there's this big active market, this is an enormous passive market of people who are just getting one size fits all, and that's a list of classified advertising. So what we firstly wanted to do is say, let's deliver an experience for everybody. So not just classified advertising, but let's get those passive people a different type of experience. So Property Playground was built off the back of where you're still in the motion of dreaming, aspiring, hopefully getting into the market, thinking about it, looking around. Let's create an environment for those people where they can go there and really start to get inspired by stuff. So Property Playground was built off that, but at the same time, start to understand their journey so that we can help agents understand where their customers are coming from. What, what and, and where the customers are going to. So you're kind of allowing and facilitating their progress along that journey. Is that right? It's all about delivering an experience for those 4 million people because those 4 million people who are not in the market today are people who will be in the market tomorrow. And when they're in the market tomorrow, being able to put keep them in front of agents consistently in a way that keeps their brand aware, but also gives them a nicer experience. So when they go from passive to active, then they do it in a much easier, much more straightforward way, but all within the confines of engaging with estate agents. So much like Purple Bricks was born from a need to do estate agency, but different, better, arguably, then Boomin is kind of a progression, as I see it, of right moves. So we have, probably should explain what Boomin is, or you should. Can you explain in a nutshell <laughs> what Boomin is? Because we've just assumed that our audience will know. So booming exists in the world because what property portals do is restrict the size of the market, they restrict engagement in the market, and they restrict insights in the market. And what I mean by that is if you go to Right Move on a Monday, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are in your journey, whether you're active or passive, it's one size fits all, list of classified ads, and still only the ability to email a branch and await a response. In a nutshell, that's the experience. But What we want to do with Berman is to say that that 
open up the market and take us back to the time before portals existed. Because when you come to Birmingham, what we want to do is not only tell you what's on the market, tell you what's being valued in the market, what's coming to the market, not yet visible, not yet live, what's in a chain coming back to the market, 30 odd percent of things that are in chains sit in chains for months and people would actively pursue those if they knew they had come back to the market. And prior to portals existing, people were aware of it because they'd go to the high street, there'd be 10 agents in the street that engage with maybe five of them. They didn't just give them what they get when they go to a portal. Here's a list of what we've got available. Tell me what you want to view. What they would do is actively understand and engage with the customer in a more meaningful way. We can't get people back into branches in the way they did in the past. But what we have to do is create a world that will bring them into the market. Because when you were in that branch, it would be, here's a list of what we have available, but here's two properties we went out to view last week. Let's have a look at those. Here's three properties we booked in for Thursday and Friday this week. Let's have a look at those. Here's three properties that we've got instructions on. We're writing the particulars up. They're not live. No one can see them, but let's have a look at them. They seem to fit your criteria as well. Here's a property we talked about in the morning meeting this morning that's in a chain coming back to the market seems to fit what you're talking about. So instead of it being this restricted view of the market, when you go to a portal, when you engage with an agent, you get a much wider view of the market, not just what's on the market, but all the activity that's happening in it. We estimate that agents, if they engage with more people, would generate anywhere between 15 to 20% more activity in the market. But because people don't do it in the same way anymore, they go to portals and think that is the market, then we don't get that same level of engagement. Really, really thank you for your time. It's been, it's been a great interview. We've really enjoyed it and learned loads. Hi, I'm Lottie from Pell and James Unique Homes. I love most about being in the AJ Mastermind group, working along similar people, business owners, sharing experiences, good and bad, in a safe space, feeling really empowered to go out there and take on new ideas and having a platform to share and learn from. Definitely, if you're hesitant, you know, speak to us for some kind of direct customer experience, really, and feedback. discover the secrets to ignite the growth of your agency. The best real estate agents, they truly had my best interest in mind instead of just getting the transaction done. And secondly, is they're curious about what we're trying to accomplish broader than just the house transaction. Hello and welcome John Rossman to the Ignite podcast. We're delighted to have you here, not least because Phil is a big fan of yours. He's slowly working through all your books, but please do tell our audience who you are. Well, thank you for welcoming me and great to be here. So John Rossman, I'm a former Amazon executive. I launched the marketplace business. So that's third party selling at amazon.com. That's over 50% of all units shipped and sold. But I left Amazon in late 2005. And I've really been working with organizations and leaders in how to make innovation happen, how to improve operations. And along the way, I've written a couple of books. And I just love talking and working with teams that are trying to make change happen and trying to grow a business. Fantastic. When you first launch a business, you take huge risks. You can make decisions that are bold because you've got nothing to lose, really. And then all of a sudden you get to six figures and bigger decisions come up. And all of a sudden you try and go the other way of safety because you've got this lifestyle and you want to protect it. 
So can you talk about how Amazon got to those decisions and how they overcame them? Yeah, so it's really the mentality avoiding what we call the avoiding country clubs. And a country club, once you're in it, what do you want to do? Well, you want to keep others kind of out of it, right? Like that's the mentality around the country club membership. And really it's about creating a growth mindset and that you have to keep trying new small things even when you've got a great business and that that helps you continue to expand and really your longest term risk is that you aren't expanding, you aren't innovating, you aren't growing your business. So the entire mindset of Amazon is growth and they have shown consistently a willingness to trade off short-term profitability to drive growth growth. And I think that that mentality, what happens in successful teams is they start playing it safe and stop making the investments and they stop taking the risks of how to expand, how to grow. So that's really the mindset that you're referring to there. So you introduced this idea of Amazon Marketplace. It was a topic that was going on at Amazon. I was brought in to help lead the launch of that marketplace. What's interesting about that story is, so the marketplace, it's called the Merchants App Program is was the name of it. It was actually the third iteration of a marketplace business at Amazon. And the first two had failed. And so oh. even early on, Amazon just had the tenacity of understanding that when you are truly innovating, you are experimenting. And when you experiment, guess what happens? Sometimes things win, sometimes things lose, they don't work, right? But Bezos just was committed to the concept that we needed to greatly expand selection for the customers and that we needed to have a third-party selling approach that helped Amazon do that. When I was at Amazon, 90% of the business was books, music, video. Which is much to look at now, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, isn't that amazing, right? And the first holiday season I was there was the first billion dollar quarter Amazon had ever had, right? They're a roughly $400 billion revenue company today. (laughs) So that just tells you with patience, things can change, things can grow. And so really, even early on, Amazon was demonstrating this willingness. If the concept is great, sometimes you got to try different aspects of the execution, right? And, you know, one of the things Bezos says is be fixed on your vision, but flexible on your tactics. Meaning sometimes you got to try different approaches. The idea is still good, but you got to try different approaches to get there. These leadership principles, which is what I write about in the Amazon way, Amazon's 14 leadership principles. Leadership is about being consistent when things aren't going great, right? And it's easy to be a good leader when things are going great. It's when you're struggling when you're learning that being a really good leader is critical. And Bezos operated the exact same way then that he does now. Now he's just got more ammunition that he can put to it. So with the 14 principles, how did Amazon lean on those to make key decisions? We here have what we call core values. Are they a similar Similar we do also have a mission and a vision as well. Yeah. Let's talk through just a couple of these so you can get kind of a flavor of what they 
what they feel and sound like, because you can lean into them a little bit more than what you typically hear from a core value or something like that. Here's an example. The first leadership principle is called customer obsession. It's the most famous, but it's only one of 14. It's not the only thing you can do. And so it talks about leaders start with the customer and work backwards. They work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust. Although leaders pay attention to competitors, they obsess over customers. And really that leadership principle has just given Amazon the permission to pursue endeavors beyond their core business that helps improve the customer experience. That's really how they've, they've used that. How does that play out? So are the leaders in the uh, Amazon group challenged every week to see what they're doing to make sure customers are at the top of it? Or how does it look? I, I do know that it didn't Bezos always have a chair at the end of the meetings. It's the empty chair. Oh, yeah. So the interesting point you bring up is that you have a principle, but then you have to have mechanisms, right? You have to have tools and approaches that put that concept into play. So there's a number of tools and concepts that help build and exercise customer obsession. One you mentioned, which is in a meeting, have an empty chair as a symbol to everybody that the customer isn't here. We have to represent the customer. So that's that's a good one when you're just getting going and everything, right? Like you don't need that. Like Amazon, I don't think does that today and everything. Another one is just the way you measure things, right? How do you actually measure the customer experience? What most people do is they measure either the outcomes, financial outcomes, orders, tickets, you know, things like that, or they measure operational components, availability, speed, things like that. But that's not the customer experience, right? How do you truly measure the customer experience. And then, you know, I think another one around this one is just the habit of in every conversation, in every meeting, in every proposal, start with why would the customer love this concept or why is this important to the customer experience? And so basically you're just inserting the customer experience into everything that you're working on. And it's just a small habit that builds over time. Like a decision mechanism filter. Is that what you're saying? That you think, well, why does this matter to our customers? One thing we do, we also run a a marketing agency as well as a real estate agency, which is where this podcast is going out to. At the moment, we've got about 80 clients. We've got every single client and all their spouses and everybody else, a photograph of them on the wall in the marketing agency. So people can, you know, it's not just an email. It's not just a little message. It's actually a person at the end of that. And so that's something that we feel strongly about. It's quite hard to do that from a real estate agent point of view. Are there any things that you can think of that that our agents could do that would help them keep the customer front and center? Totally put you on the spot there, John, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. When I think about something like that, I think about understanding your customer broader and deeper than just like the transaction or the product or the service that you're interested in. And so the best real estate agents that I've worked with over the years, and and we've bought and sold a number of homes. And so I've seen, you know, the highlights and the lowlights and everything, but they truly had my best interest in mind instead of just getting the transaction done. And secondly, is they're curious about our life, our family, what we're trying to accomplish broader than just the house transaction and everything, right? So that long-term perspective and that willingness to be mindful and interested beyond just the transaction. But guess what? That takes a long time to do. It takes a lot of interest. There's no guarantees at the end of the day that it pays off, right? But essentially playing that long game versus playing the short game. So one of the leadership principles that talks to this exact 
exactly is called ownership. And here's the description for it. Leaders are owners. They think long-term and don't sacrifice long-term value for short-term results. And so that's exactly what we're talking about is playing the long game and not sacrificing long-term value for short-term results. Yeah, this is something that we found a real challenge. We've only been open four years as a real estate agency. And when we first opened, cash was everything. We just didn't have any. It was really, really hard to get off the ground and not rush to a bank for borrowing that they probably wouldn't have given us anyway. And at the same time, we'd already decided we were going to be selective about the kind of homes we would take on. And those two things were at odds with each other. And I knew, or we knew, it was for the long-term good of the business. But when you don't actually have the money there to make those decisions, it's a really hard tightrope to walk isn't it? It's extremely hard to do. And there's no judgment in this, right? Like you have the reality of a short-term financial situation that has to be met, but kudos to you to have your brand in mind, like what you wanted to be and figuring out how to insert that into short-term decisions that had to be made. And there's always trade-offs there. So the 14th leadership principle is called deliver results, right? And so at the end of the day, you still have to deliver results. But one of the things that, that I learned so much about Amazon is focusing on the inputs to get to your results not as much focus on the outputs, right? So inputs are things that we're directly in control of. How many meetings did I have today? How many people did I meet? How many open homes did I go to? Those are the inputs. And what you have to trust is that those right inputs will get you to the outputs that you want. But avoiding kind of the victim mentality of like, oh, I'm not you know, getting the outputs I want. Typically that's because you're not being systematic and mindful of getting to the right inputs to get you there. That is so true. Every Friday we do what we call the scorecard and we share our stats for the week. In fact, it's actually on the board next to us here. And there's output and then in a different colour, there's the results. And we know that they're linked, but sometimes agents just judge themselves on their results. But actually, you've got to trust the process. You've got to do the same things week in, week out. It's what we would try and teach them, but it's hard. If anybody is a gambler or a poker player and everything, right? Like what you learn in poker is the result is actually meaningless. It's did I play the hand the right way that you have to pay attention to, right? That's an example of focusing on the inputs and just trusting that over time, you're going to get the right outputs if you're following your process. So when we first wrote the, sorry, the, the second book is called The Amazon Way, is that right? And the first book we call Think Like Amazon. So when you wrote Think Like Amazon, how much longer after leaving Amazon was, did you write that? Oh, about 10 years. So it was quite a bit after that. And that's the power of this was it had been several years after I left Amazon and I was using these strategies. I was using these tactics with my clients. And one of my clients actually at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, he ran communications for the foundation. He pulled me into his office one day and he goes, John, you know, I see how you insert these little things into our work. And I think you ought to write a book about it. And so the smartest thing I did was talk him into being my business partner on these books because I had never envisioned, you know, being an author or a thought leader and everything. But I saw the power of not just the principles, but the tactics of Amazon and that they're transferable. You can put them into any business, any industry to help grow both excellence as well as innovation. And I think that's the double combination that Amazon really represents is they are a world-class operator 
and they're a systematic innovator. And what it achieves at the end of the day is great growth. But that was kind of my path to getting here. It was several years after I left Amazon that I even started developing these book concepts. And so I've just had the opportunity to practice them and put them into play And I think that's really, you know, kind of my superpower. And there's some other really good books written about Amazon, but I've been the one that's been out there using them the most. And so I think I'm good at helping apply them into other circumstances. And you've now applied them into companies like Target, who we think is our Asda, Toys R Us, and the MBA which is a crazy thing to do. What do you see in each of these businesses that are similar when you go in there? And what particular things do you look for to change? Well, it's a full playbook, right? So I really believe in listening first and really understanding not just the circumstances, but what I have to understand is my job is getting people to change, right? And if I get the people to change, then the outcomes will change, right? So I really have to understand like, what's the dynamics of the leadership that I'm working with? How do decisions get made? And I'm realistic in like, I can't, you know, change a zebra into a lion, right? I have to stay within the zebra family here, right? But I can add some things to them. And so I'm very careful about not coming in with a fixed mindset of, well, this is the playbook we're going to run because it works every time. Things don't work that way. So it's different for each one. But the things that I see pretty typically are first is that they don't know how to apply metrics to their business, right? So we've, we've been talking about this, right? Measuring the inputs and the outputs, right? Most people want a simple scorecard and most organizations want are primarily output oriented versus a lot of metrics and really measuring the customer experience and measuring your input. So that's one thing that's fairly consistent between them. And then the other is around experimentation. And everybody thinks that they're innovator, but they actually don't understand that to innovate, it's a completely different different management science than being an operator. And so most of these organizations are really good operators and they say they want to innovate, but they don't understand that experimentation means failure. And that's the learning that you get, right? And so how do you make experimenting as fast and cheap as possible? Because you have to allow for some things to not work. And so that mindset, like that's where the agile mindset, the minimally viable product, you know, fail fast. Well, when they're talking about failing fast, they're not talking about sloppy execution. They're talking about learning, right? Experimenting and learning from it. And so it's typically on the innovation agenda that I sometimes get deeply involved in some of these organizations with. They don't understand the core essence of being an innovator. Is that the biggest part of pushback you get then from them? The biggest resistance that they call themselves innovators, but actually they don't want to put themselves out of the comfort zone. You see that a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. And what that happens with that, because everybody in the organization knows like, okay, yeah, they're talking about being an innovator, but I know if this doesn't work out, it's going to reflect poorly on me. So what does anybody do that's part of this innovation agenda? Well, first of all, they're going to cover themselves, right? So they slow things down. They make sure everybody's aware of what's going on. You slow it down. Well, that's mistake number one, right? You need your innovation to be really fast, right? That's what makes it cheap. And then they also start pulling back on actually the risks. And so they're no longer actually risks. They're safe bets that we start making. Well, that's going to lead you to to incremental ideas, not real new capabilities. And so that's where it starts unraveling is people know that leadership is talking one thing, but they don't act in a consistent manner relative to that. So I might have a different opinion. Well, I do have a different opinion, hopefully to you on this. (laughs) 
can and do people change in the long term or is it a short-term fix and they always go back to you can absolutely change but it takes small habits in being purposeful in making those changes happen the individual change really happens now in a bigger company you can bring in some new leadership right and that's kind of the fast path to getting there but people absolutely can but the key is you know having a principle but then small mechanics those mechanisms those little things you do to help make it a habit it's no different than deciding to get in better shape and everything you have to create a daily habit about going to the gym or whatever, you know, the routine is going to be. It's the same thing on these things as pick small habits to practice it. And over time, it becomes just the way you are and you've actually created a change. So is that what you would do when you go into these big companies? You would notice a challenge that a leader has and then there's certain activities or things you go to that would slowly change their habits. And do you see resistance to this or do they usually go with it? Oh, yeah. No, let's go. Yeah, absolutely fine. You You know, that's been the part that I've learned the most on is like, you know, I'm an engineer by background, right? It's like, hey, problem, solution, implement it, you know, and everything, right? Straight line. But (laughs) what I've seen is like, oh, no, this is about how do you get people to want to do that and then to do it and everything versus, you know, kind of a command and control mindset. And so it's so much about being a catalyst and how do you make this the easiest path to go to and the path that they chose, not the one you recommended, right? And so there's all sorts of approaches, but at the end of the day, it's about leadership, right? So I have to work with leadership and get them to change, and then they will lead the change throughout the rest of the organization. Can you give us just a small example of what you see as a challenge in a leader and what few activities you give or what habits you try and teach them? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we talked about how innovating is really experimentation and all of that. And so one of the mechanisms, one of the little habits are, hey, we are just going to write what's called a future press release. And when you're working with a CEO or a senior team, you know, these people, like, I don't actually write things out. <laughs> I, I review things like, no, 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 no. We're You're going to write this. So for this new project or this endeavor that we want to take on, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to push you to actually in a clear, concise, direct manner, explain to me how this improves the customer experience. And so that practice of like, oh no, I'm going to be the builder. I'm going to be the writer. And I have to articulate the customer experience and clearly why it's better for the customer. That's one of those little habits that starts getting them to understand it. And then what we're going to do is with that concept that they've written out, what's the cheapest and fastest way that we could test that concept? And what's the riskiest part of that concept, you know, and everything, right? And so get them to design the experiment again versus just having others bring it to them. And those things then take habit like, okay, yeah, I know how to design an experiment. Then they're in a better position to work with others to do that. It's been fantastic talking to you, John. It's a subject that we are really passionate about ourselves. We'd love to be better leaders than we are and not just business owners and runners. So I'm really looking forward to reading Mm. the book and I'm sure that everybody that's listening to this needs to go and dive in straight away. But thank you so much for your time. Very much enjoyed talking to you and learning about the principle. Well, I appreciate that. It was nice meeting both of you and I appreciate what you're driving with your audience here. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. If you are feeling frustrated with the lack of growth in your agency and you're impatient to reach those ever-moving goalposts, 
then here's your invitation to find out more about if and how we can help you scale and build the agency of your dreams. All we want you to do is go to fire-wave.co.uk forward slash AJMM and that'll be in the show notes as well where you'll find full information on all of our amazing mastermind programs.